everybody. Welcome to Lit. This is the show where we review fire books and aren't afraid to tackle those spicy takes. I am your host, Jess, and joining me today for our inaugural episode is PJ, and we're going to be talking about uh, Pierce Brown's dystopian hellscape, Red Rising. Thanks for joining me today, PJ. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very excited. I know that I had recommended this book to you, and then when you ended up really liking it and asked me to do this, I was I was extremely excited. So lots to talk I'm- about for sure. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so excited to talk about this book. Thank you so much to everybody who's joining us today. I see Abby in the chat. Hey, Abby. I know she also just finished the book. She like, or I think she got really close. She mad dashed to the end to get ready yeah, for today. An hour and a half left, an hour and a half ago. So I think she's just been <laughs> like, probably just finished it as we're starting this, and she's still like wrapping her mind around what happened. So right. perfect time. Perfect timing. Well, for those of you who haven't read it, I'm just going to give you the quick take from the back of the book and if it piques your interest. So his wife is taken, his people enslaved, driven by a longing for justice and memory of lost love. Daryl will stop at nothing to bring down his enemies, even if he must become one of them to do so. Just hearing that off the back of the book, what are you feeling, PJ? You know, it's funny. I don't think I read the back of the book first. I do like it, but um, I feel like, well, I don't know if you want to get into this yet, but I feel like when I was first told about this book, it didn't sound interesting to me. And it was uh, my sister that kept like telling me, she's like, no, you're, you're going to like this one. And I finally, uh, finally gave it a listen and ended up loving it. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I, I don't know, I, spo- like the little blurbs, it's, it's always hard to tell. I go off of recommendations more than that, but. Yeah, I totally feel that. And it's such a short blurb. Like normally, like sometimes authors will take up a page and a half or something crazy, the whole inside flap. But this is like three sentences. It me, it's like, oh, this could be really interesting. I actually like it better though. I like it better than if someone told me the plot because like if you just try to explain without spoilers, like the opening plot of it, it almost sounds less interesting and it sounds more intriguing when you do this. Because I think the book is so much deeper than the trappings of of the the plot in some ways or, or the trappings of the the theme i don't know like what am i trying to say it's like if i tell you hey it's about this minor guy on mars you know that's we, that doesn't sound interesting that there's like no stakes there yeah if you told me hey this is about a, a dystopian future where people are put into different colors and some colors are enslaved and some colors are the leaders i'd be like oh wow another young adult uh, dystopian novel and that's exactly what I thought when I would heard about it and it's so much it is so much more than that so right. I think the three sentence blurb with a little bit of intrigue is probably better yeah I totally agree and honestly I would not even classify this book as young adult for those of you who've read it and know how dark it is I would not let like a 13 year old read this book it's very dark it, so this is one of my favorite things about this book too is Again, it, it, I, I read a, I don't know if I read this or saw an interview with Pierce Brown, but he was talking about how when he pitched the book, basically his editors made him turn it into a young adult novel. And it has some of the trappings of the young adult novels. And the, the series grows so much further beyond that. But even this first book, it really is an adult novel that's been marketed so that way it could ever get on shelves and we could ever read this book to uh, the Hunger Games audience, I would say. Yeah, I totally agree. And when I was reading reviews for this book on Goodreads, I constantly kept seeing that comparison to The Hunger Games. And it just made me sad because it is far and away better than The Hunger Games. And I liked The Hunger Games when I read it as a teenager. 
this has so much more to offer. Um, yeah, it, it really does. And like, I, I don't even like making the Hunger Games comparison. It's just an obvious comparison of like the the premise. The premise is very similar in a way, but yet I feel like this book is a launching point to a bigger universe. And you're you're almost through the third book now, so you probably w- would agree with that. Oh, 100%. The first book is closer to the Hunger Games. The remaining books are way more space opera, way more into the nitty gritty of what it takes to rule such a big universe. And it's it's really so interesting. Though, I wouldn't have ever finished this book if you hadn't gotten me to try it again. Because when I was in grad school, I tried to read it. I don't know what it is about first person uh, present tense, like saying Mm. says instead of said, it just like rubs me the wrong way. And I have to get like my brain into that because so many books are third person past tense. Uh, Not only that, but the slang the Reds use was really hard for me to get used to. And so I have to give a big shout out to Tim Tim Gerard Reynolds, who is amazing in the audio book. Oh my so God. I, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have liked this book had I read it, but I wouldn't have loved it in the same way that I do because Tim Gerard Reynolds really brings it to life. Like I couldn't imagine a single other author that or narrator, I should say, that would have done this book justice. So it, it's it's great. It's a great book, like uh, and the Dead Tree edition, as my wife has read them that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, I feel like this is one that if I had to recommend, you know, one way to do this, it's it's the audiobook for sure. he does such a great job with the accents like it was hard for me to like kind of get in that mind of the slang but he gives all of the different colors accents uh just the way he gives the characters different voices and inflections like you would expect that of an audiobook reader not everybody does it well he does it amazing every single time so so I don't. I don't want to give away too many spoilers early on, but I. I did uh, want to point out something else that he does that's really amazing. Is Darrow changes his accent through through the books, through different times when he's being himself and when he's acting. And what I've noticed, if you read through the books, it's such a gradual change. Darrow changes so gradually over. I've read five books now because uh, the sixth one isn't out yet. That it, it's it's interesting to just re-listen to him again because this is one of the series and I don't this often. This is one of the series I've listened to each book multiple times. So I think I read the original trilogy, then the fourth one came out, so I reread the original trilogy again, and the fourth one, and then I reread all four before the fifth one came out. So I've listened to him a lot, and you just notice that like it, his voice, his accent, and everything changes. And Tim Dredd Reynolds does it so subtly that it's it's pretty brilliant. He really is a master craftsman of being a book reader, which is a weird skill to say someone has, but he he yeah. does such an amazing job. And you're right, that subtle character development, which very much matches the pacing of Pierce Brown's writing. Darrow's character development is very subtle and you notice it. It's not like there's this big moment and then he has this change of heart like there is in so many YA books, which is why I would not classify this book as YA as much as they want to sell it as that. And one of the reasons that is, is it comes down to themes. So I want to talk about some of the major themes that are in this book. The first, of course, is social standing. We'll get into breaking down the color class system. Then there's rebellion, war, and strategy. Of course, the thinking back to the Hunger Games, but much bigger, more space opera uh, thinking of big fleets engaging in fighting. There's the injustice, again, a little similar to the Hunger Games, but focusing on the color separation. The big thing to me is the family values and traditions, and I'm really going to get into that. Uh, Honor and dignity, 
I love that it comes from a lot of the Greek and Roman mythology he's drawing his inspiration from. Grief, he deals with grief in such a real right. and powerful way. Uh, friendship and camaraderie, of course, you'd expect that in most books, but he does such a phenomenal job of creating one of the greatest there. bromances in all of literature, in my opinion. Yeah, 100%. 100%. <laughs> yeah. 100%. <laughs> Uh, sacrifice, the sacrifice hits hard and it hits early. So we're going to have a spoiler warning very early on in today's episode. Right. And then there's faith. Faith is very subtle. It's very undertone, but it drives, I think, a lot of the actions of the people in this book. So yeah, I feel start- Darrow's, Darrow's definitely driven by faith through a lot of this. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But- yeah, no, you're good. Uh, you're 100% <clears throat> right. His faith in his wife, his faith in his family, and his faith in the veil. And definitely want to touch on all those things. It's so, yep. so important. Um, but let's start with family values and traditions. Because I think we can talk a lot about that without spoiling too much. Sure, absolutely. And it starts know, there. The book starts there. It starts there. For there. Sure. Um, so imagine, you know, you live with your family. Maybe you don't have a lot. And the thing that is important to you and what is important to the Reds is their family. Uh, They don't survive very long because they are miners. They're a mining colony on Mars. And the thing I love about this is that they're mining for helium-3. And I'm going to be a tiny nerd for like five seconds. Okay, I want to know. Is (laughs) helium-3 a real thing? I've always wondered. Helium-3 is 100% a real thing. It is an isotope of helium. It is one of the only isotopes that is stable where it has more protons than neutrons. Um. And there is some research going on to actually use it as an energy source. It is one of the few elements that you can do nuclear fusion, uh, fission with that doesn't oh. leave radi- radioactive decay. <laughs> so, I'm so glad I'm so glad that you know this because I was just always under the assumption like helium three is just made up as a plot device. So it's so good to know that there's some science there with this. I think that's why I love this book so much is because so many authors could just like make up whatever BS they want to about whatever science thing. And he certainly does with like the grab boots and the, uh, we'll get into it all. Um, But the helium theory is the one thing that's like super duper real. And I absolutely love that. That's good because it's a huge plot device for like. All of, yeah, all of the the books. I got to say though, another, another misassumption, um, Another false assumption of this series is that it is science fiction. And I wouldn't classify it as that personally. I don't know how you feel, but like, I feel like the science, when, when I think of science fiction, I think of stuff like, um, what's the one you had me read recently? Uh, the, uh, Project Hail Mary. Yeah. Project Hail Mary or Michael Crichton or things like that, right. where it's like the science is a character almost. It's a, it's a huge part of the plot. And I feel like this, like it's interesting to learn that helium three is, not just entirely made up, but I also feel like in a lot of ways, like the science that doesn't matter as much, like sometimes it is a plot device, but I feel like it's so it's more star Wars than like uh, Michael Crichton. I would say. I really like that comparison. I also think it's more star Wars um, than it would be super sciencey and right. it's more character focused than yes. well, Project Hail Mary is definitely character focused. We're going to have to do an episode about that one day. Cause yeah, I love we'll do an episode book. about that for sure. Um, but so, yeah, so they're miners. If you think back to mining colonies on earth, right? People don't survive in that situation very long. There are cave-ins, accidents happen when you deal with mining equipment. 
It, helium might be a very stable isotope, but it's also a gas. So it can lead to heat pockets and like all these things mm. can happen. So a lot of times people die young, which means they have to marry young. And so there's this huge family focus. People get married when they're young. Darrow is 16 when we meet him in the novel. Um, thank you for subbing, Texan by the grace of God. Nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Yep. Uh, so he's 16 and he's already married. He's married to his childhood love, EO. And that's young to be married. That is not socially acceptable for us, but you can understand it in their situation. In their situation, it's kind of forced too, I believe. I think the boys marry at 16 and the girls marry at 14. Um, And I think, didn't it say that EO had to like put off marrying for two years, like despite, you know, the pressures of her society in order to marry Darrow. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's definitely that, which again, kind of harkens back to those old earth traditions, which we'll see a lot of throughout this book. There's this strange need to simultaneously hold on to very ancient traditions while at the same time using all of this crazy highfalutin science technology. It's a very interesting mix that I think keeps people really into it. Yeah. But one of the things I like a lot is the focus on dance and song. And so here, let me show you one of the overlays we have here. this one did you find okay (laughs) yeah no i had to go through and count yeah i like this so words are a weapon stronger than he knows and songs are even greater the words wake the mind the melody wakes the heart i come from a people of song and dance i don't need him to tell me the power of words uh this quote from darrow i think is very powerful and really sums up red culture darrow's taught to dance by his uncle merrill um which is a very intimate sort of training like a father might teach his son to play catch or something like that it, it's very intimate and important mm-hmm. to their tradition and they have dances and songs that are not allowed it, it if you ever heard of capoeira by the way this is what it made me think of instantly uh there's like this I've brazilian yeah it's it's brazilian dance fighting and the reason it existed was because they would learn to dance but they were really learning a martial art at the same mm-hmm. time. And I think that's kind of what he's alluding to with uh, the Reaper's dance and, and things like that, where they are practicing with a sigh and they're dancing, but it, it's like fluid movements into that translate into fighting. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know if you that picked actually, up on that. Or. No, you're right, because that plays a role in the second book. Well, even kind of later in this book, too. In this where book, Where he yeah. learns how to fight and things like that. And a lot of it is familiar because of the dances he learned as a child. Right. So I I very much love that. Uh, One of the biggest traditions in the red mining colonies is the winning of the laurel. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, every, every quarter they have, uh, well, it's, I'm I'm trying to remember how many. So the mining colonies are split up into, like beta, gamma, all these different tribes. Letters of the Greek alphabet. Letters of the Greek Greek alphabet. And I don't remember if it's all the letters or how many they said, but there's one tri- one tribe that wins the laurel every time. And the laurel is, hey, you guys mine the most helium three and you get this prize. You're the favored slaves is what it is. What it is. And Darrow nearly kills himself to win the laurel in the beginning of this book and kind of finds out that it, it doesn't matter. It's all rigged. It's, it's a it's a rigged system. They have favored slaves and the gamma are going to be the favored slaves forever. So that way they're hating their brothers instead of hating their masters. I think that was really interesting. 
It is a really interesting setup too, because, you know, he's so insistent on winning the Laurel and everyone around him's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, just do your work. It kind of reminds me if you have like a job you don't like and everyone around you is like, oh, just kind of give it your best, whatever. But you right. got that new guy who's like really wants to prove himself. Yeah. And it's like, dude, just give up. I can change things around here. I can change things. He's just waiting for his spirit to break. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I feel for him because right. you could kind of feel his spirit break a little bit in that. And that kind of goes to show you how much of a farce this is. That's when he kind of starts to pick up on it because at this point, Everyone in the Red Colony has been told that they're doing this to terraform Mars. They're going to be the heroes of Earth. They're going to save all of these people. And the reason they're mining for Helium-3 is so they can escape the Earth that's dying. And the only way to do it is to work under these gold masters. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how much more you want to say before we give a, a spoiler right. warning because well, it, it doesn't take long for the book to really shift gears and become right. something very different for sure. It doesn't. So the thing I want to mention, just kind of real quick before we jump into the spoilers, is the social standing because you kind of get a glimpse of it because we're introduced to the reds, the grays, and the golds. So right. and I think co- kind of, I think there's like a copper in there too. Yeah, there might have been a copper in there. So this is a picture I found on the internet. I think it's a really cool breakdown of the color system. So you see the reds here at the bottom. And they basically support all of the other colors in the society, all the way up to the gold who are at the top. And everybody has different roles. So we see the golds are the rulers. Coppers are involved in bureaucracy. Silvers in logistics. Whites in justice. Violets are artists. Uh, yellows are doctors, oranges are engineers, uh, greens are technicians, blues are astronomers, obsidians are kind of like assassins. Think of your soldiers. Grays are more soldiers, but obsidians are kind of the obsidians are like the guys. berserker class of soldiers. They're they're like uh, I think they're based on essentially Norse uh, warriors. So sorry, I, I love no, you're good. Yeah, I yeah. love the obsidian culture. It's so interesting yeah. and. It's really sad what happened to them. Again, we'll, we'll kind of save that. There's um, not there's not much about obsidians in this first book, for sure. No. It really comes into play in the next one. Uh, I'm in the third book, and there's just like know, so much there. <laughs> it's killing me. Then the pinks are for pleasure, uh, browns are servants, and then, of course, the reds are slaves. And so I'm going to give you guys a big old fat spoiler warning here because we've talked about all there is to talk about. Without getting into spoilers, it really major spoilers. Yeah, major starts spoilers. right away. <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't read the book yet and we've piqued your interest, I hope you go read it. I would love it if you guys stayed around, but I totally respect the decision to be like, mm, now I'm interested. Maybe I should read it before I listen to the rest of this episode. So feel free to be do, like, okay, I'll come back later. Go ahead. Do you mind if I pique their interest one more time before yes. for, if anybody wants to hop off and read and then come back to this? Because uh, I highly recommend it. And, and I know, you know, we're talking about dancing and young adult novels and it might, might not sound interesting to you, but I would put it this way. And I don't remember if the author said this or who said this, but this is the way I look at it. Red Rising in the whole series is essentially historical fiction set a thousand years in the future. And the more you get into the series, the more, and, and especially if you reread it, you'll catch stuff. That's why I've reread these books so many times is you'll see that every character and event and thing happening relates back to some interesting point in history. So you've got characters that represent Alexander the Great or Martin Luther King or the IRA or Caesar Augustus, Nero, like all of it. So like 
especially the further you get into it, it's like every every important thing about history and understanding history as this is this grand scheme has been put in these books and then set in the future in this really Star Warsy yet kind of I don't know gladiatorial way. It's it's amazing. It's just a blend of a lot of great things and there's so much knowledge hidden in these books. So hopefully that piques your interest if if the rest of it didn't. And if you're one of those people who are like, I don't like fiction, I don't like fantasy or sci-fi, this sounds too weird. Well, I think this book has really important cultural importance, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, But like all the big themes we talked about, Pierce Brown's not those themes that maybe our culture doesn't like so much. So if you like it, check it out. Highly recommend the Audible version. All right. Final spoiler warning. I'm excited. <laughs> We're going to get into it now. So yep. I want to talk about is grief because that's the thing that comes in right away. And the grief comes because EO and Darrow, after finding out they didn't win the Laurel, EO's like, okay, I'm going to make my husband happy. She takes him to this area inside the mines where they've created kind of like this greenhouse. Garden. I don't know. If, yeah. It's, yeah, it's really different. It's, uh, there's trees and there's grass. They, uh, you have to remember, they're underground. They've never seen the sky. They've never seen the moon or the sun or anything. All they've known is the red dirt of Mars uh, under the ground. And so getting to see the trees and getting to this open space where they could see the stars was very impactful. And as you can imagine, since they're slaves, they're probably not supposed to be there. Um, but, you know, they spend some time there. They're caught in the morning by... I can't, was it the grays who catch them? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And ugly Dan so, or something like that. Yeah. Ugly Dan. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rough life for ugly Dan. So right. uh, they're caught and punishment is not kind here. Uh, again, hearkening back to those olden times, punishment is swift. They're brought in front of their whole tribe to be whipped for this event and that, that could have been it, right? They could have been punished and then sent back to their families. But Eo wasn't quite content to just be whipped and sent back to her family. Um, she says this phrase right here, break the chains, my love. And you know that she knows something that Darrow hasn't quite caught on to. He's very much a boy of dreams. He just wants to have a family. He just wants to live his life. But Eo wants much more, and she sees something that he does not. She wants to be free from this slavery. And she and also so, sees the potential in Darrow. She sees that people will follow him. And right. that he's, yeah, even though he's, like, given up this ambition, like, he has so much more to give. And she sees that in her husband. And I think that's something... Uh, strangely a lot of people around him do see his mother sees it his uncle sees it um and so they're all kind of pushing him to be something more than he himself even wants to be at the very beginning he's kind of like a reluctant hero until what eo does happens and she sings the song that you're not supposed to sing should i play that song for our audience yeah let's listen to a little bit of it i love it it's great i do too all right let's go My love 
So that's just a small snippet. I don't want to get copyrighted, so I'm not going to yeah, play yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> um, but that song is very powerful, and it speaks to a sense of rising up in rebellion. It's referred to at this point as the Reaper song. Um, and when they're up there being whipped and EO sings this song, who happens to be there but the arch governor of all of Mars, a gold himself, arch governor Augustus. And this is very much the forbidden song and no one can live to tell the tale after singing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's, really sad. (laughs) It is really sad. I mean, obviously, yeah, his wife dies in the beginning of the book and it doesn't, it's not very far into it. Um, And uh, that kind of leads Darrow to give up. And I think it leads him to an opposite direction than what she was hoping. And he kind of, Sacri- tries to sacrifice his life as so well. I didn't want to step over you on, on, that, on that, but no, that was perfect because yeah. yeah. you're right. He does, he goes back out into uh, that garden area to bury her body, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to leave the dead bodies to hang so everybody can see them until they've rotted away and then they throw them in the furnace. It's terrible. He wanted to give her a proper burial, um, which he did do. And he buries her course, in the garden too. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, again, that's one of those things you're not supposed to do. So he's hung for it. And that would be the end of the book if Pierce Brown was a terrible writer. But he's not. (laughs) So it's not the end of the book. And he wakes up. Where does he wake up? He wakes up buried in a mine shaft, I think. Uh, His uncle had cut him down. And uh, he's being taken by these people with demon masks somewhere. Uh, And he has no idea what's going on right now. So... That would be super scary if you woke up, <laughs> thought you had died, and there are just these demon peoples around you. Which your neck hurts, that- yeah, and the demons, demons digging you out of the ground. It'd be pretty right. terrifying for sure. That would be super terrifying. And like he because he because that- he dies by hanging. That's the other thing too. So like it seems really convincing that he's dead. Right. And the thing about Mars, gravity is really low. So- you're gonna die by the natural gravitational force of gravity breaking your neck usually a loved one has to come and break your neck so you don't just suffocate to death again very very sad very traumatic way of having to you basically have to kill your own loved one so they don't suffer um that's just another form of like control that they put over these people like they they shift the grief onto them just like how they shift you know the anger from being mad at the golds to being mad at Gamma, your your neighbors who are also slaves. They shift the blame from the golds to you by making you have to pull the feet of your loved one. It's it's a pretty cruel system. It is a really cruel system. And there are just these little things throughout this whole society where the golds are constantly putting, uh, misdirecting their responsibility onto the lower colors or onto the person themselves rather than the golds who are in charge of this whole mess and nonsense um yeah so i feel like that's yeah it's it's sorry but like it's also one of the uh the whole thing i think too is like everybody's got blood on their hands in this system and that's that's i think one of the yeah it's one of the ways that they even keep uh and as you learn later it's how they keep the golds from from even rebelling in certain ways like they they just make everybody complicit in the system and everybody complicit in the in the in in guilt and the blood of of their their neighbors Right, because you would think that maybe a silver or a gray would see what's going on and be like, okay, you know, maybe I should stop this. I have just a little bit more power than the slaves, but they don't because now everybody's been made complicit. Now everybody's involved. And 
that's a lot of guilt and shame to have to live with. And there's this sort of sense that the situation is hopeless. But EO didn't think so. The folks who took Darrow didn't think so. And the folks who took Darrow are known as the Sons of Ares. So they have been plotting this strategy to rise up against the Golds and the whole society uh, and turn it upside down. And their ultimate plan is to turn a red into a gold and send them off into gold high society to basically infiltrate and take them down from within. How's a person supposed to do that? Turn from a red into a gold? Yeah, it's it's a lot more complicated than uh, changing your hair and eye color because like these people have been genetically altered for a thousand years. So the reds are essentially us. They're 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 based on the Irish. They come from that lineage, as you find out in the book, and that's where their heritage comes from. But they are not enhan- They are non-enhanced human beings. They are just normal human beings. And the golds are like seven feet plus tall. Uh, they've got like reinforced bones. They weigh you know upwards of four hundred pounds. They're just like these massive, huge, hulking human beings. They've got like computer chips in their head. Well, like it goes through all of it. It's like really intense how different the golds are physically. Whereas like in some books, like, hey, I'm wearing this tunic and I come from a certain bloodline. This is like, you can't just, you can't just fake it. Not easily. Right. Yeah. (laughs) The the saying, fake it till you make it. You can't fake the, you know, having a gold sigil and, you know, dyeing your hair yellow. You know, that just doesn't work here. Contacts, yeah. No, that's not going to cut it here. Because not only does he have to get into gold society, he has to get into gold high society. And gold high society is not like super lazy and, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I'm going to do. Those types of golds are often referred to as pixies, the ones who are indulging in all of the sex and drugs and all of the immoral behaviors. High gold society actually holds very much to this sense of honor and dignity to the traditional Greek mythology of being strong. And so they're basically pitted against each other in this very brutal fight. And Darrow has to somehow not only survive the fight, but dominate that fight. So they have to turn him into a big gold, a very powerful gold. So a violet named Mickey comes along um, and he's known as a carver, which basically means he can do all of these crazy bio modifications. This is where the science gets a little fictiony unless really for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they have to tear Darrow apart, like limb from limb, like it's like self from self. Make him, yeah. (laughs) The process they describe sounds really terrible and awful. I've had like knee surgery, and that was painful (laughs) enough. I can't imagine like having all of my bones and cells replaced. Eyes replaced, brain, yep, chips put into your head, your bones lengthened and strengthened, and your muscles lengthened and uh, strengthened. Yeah, it's it's a pretty insane process. It's really terrible. And uh, Dancer, one of the sons of Ares, probably one of the heads of the sons of Ares, tells him that uh, basically no one survived this before, this whole process. We've had like, what, 95 tries and you're try 96 or something like that. Yeah. Good luck, bro. <laughs> Hope <laughs> yeah. you survive it. But there's something about Darrow, his willingness to survive, despite his original willingness to basically kill himself. He locks onto Eo very hard, holds on to that dream that she had to overcome this oppression. Because if he dies, then she died for nothing, right? So he wants to make that dream come true, infiltrate the Reds, uh, 
and start anew. So he does. So he turn basically turns himself into a gold, learns all he has to learn, and gets into something called the Institute. What is the Institute? So then this, this is why the comparison is made to the Hunger Games. The Institute mm-hmm. is this again, you said the highest of the high society. Basically, you have to test, you have to be a gold and test for do I want to become the top, the elite of the gold? And they call them the, the scarred. The peerless and scarred. The peerless scarred, sorry. Yeah, the peerless yeah, scarred. Yeah. And they go through this institute where no one knows going in like what it's about. You're not allowed to, to, to tell your children there's like some huge NDA where they'll just like totally kill you if you talk about it. Right. And uh, but, but the peerless scarred all know and they can actually watch as this happens. But it's essentially this year-long school where they have to dominate. They have to recreate society from the ground up. So they start off in tribes, they start off in castles, and they have to enslave their fellow citizens and dominate them and turn all of the all of the society from from tribal into a, a functioning, you know, single society, which is funny because the whole tribal aspect is right there in the beginning of the book. It's why the reds were never able to rise and do anything because they are still tribal so much that they can't even forgive their their gamma neighbors who are getting a little bit more sugar right. with their tea or getting a little bit more rations or actually get medicine. It's like they hate them because they're getting treated a little bit better. So the reds have never risen above tribalism. And that's what the golds are teaching their children is just how to dominate and run a run run worlds, run yeah. a galaxy. It's a very gr- gruesome way to teach children how to be warlords, but how else <laughs> so, are you going to teach a kid to be a warlord? I don't know. I wouldn't pick this way, but I'm well, also start, not a warrior. Yeah, I was going to say, it starts off pretty brutal, too. Do you want to talk about the passage? Okay, so when we, uh, this is where we get into the idea of sacrifice is the passage. Right. So the only way to actually get into the suit, sure, you're picked for your brains and your all the things that you know, but you're also picked for your prowess and your willingness to do whatever it takes. And so in the passage, Darrow has to <laughs> kill a gold with his bare hands. And... It just so happens this is a gold he knows and actually kind of started to like at the beginning. That's the hard part in Darrow's situation. I feel like he's such a nice, Darrow is such a nice person. He starts to find the good in everybody he meets, even these golds, the society who's oppressed him and his people for hundreds of years. And he starts to notice the similarities between reds like himself and the golds because they're all just people. And so this kid, Julian, it's just a person, right? He's a kid. He uh, has a happy-go-lucky attitude. Uh, his brother Cassius is being like buddies with Darrow. Like he's he's starting to get that brotherly bond going on. But then he's thrown into the passage, and it's either kill Julian or give up on Eo's dream and the whole idea of ever getting the Reds out from underneath gold slavery. So yeah, he kills so every- Julian. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It, it, it's it, every single person has to go through this. They literally take a school of what is it like 12 houses, 1200, 1200 students essentially. So there's, they're split into 12 houses based on the Roman God pantheon. Mm-hmm. So you've got Mars and Ceres and all of these different things. And they literally just bring half of them there on day one, kill them off. And they, and they kind of pair it up as in like, Here's a guy who's strong. We think we'll win. Here's a guy who's weak. And we just, you know, they actually, like literally bring in weak people to be sacrificed. Right. Their own children. Yeah. So the golds it, are as brutal <laughs> to their own people as they are to anybody just about. If you think about, I mean, not as, but you know what I'm saying? Like it is a brutal society all the way around. 
<laughs> et tu, Brute. Yeah, exactly. Life yeah, to the max. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Well, and it's very much true because there's, I think it's in the first book, they talk about how the fact if uh, children can't survive when they're very young as a goal, they're just left to die. You know, so there's very much this desire for power ingrained in that gold high society. And by the time these kids are teenagers, they're basically fighting each other to the death. Yeah. And sometimes that doesn't always work out in their planned favor, pitting those really strong guys against the supposedly weak golds. Yeah, which is a really great part of the book too. There's the the it dregs of the of the institute that that ended up winning their fights, which are pretty interesting as the as the series goes along. I loved that so much because there are yeah. these uh, so-called dregs, right? These golds who don't really measure up to the other high golds who are in the institute. So Cassius gives them all really terrible nicknames like Pebble and Screwface and things like that. Weed and, and Thistle. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they all totally make it through the passage. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, screw you, Cassius. Yep. I love that. Yeah. I also see Abby over here trying to trying to bring conspiracy pilled onto your show. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, we're going to get into some of that a little bit later, yeah. so stay tuned. Um, but that brings them together. It's like you had to kill someone. Now you have, like you were saying before, putting the responsibility on them instead of the gold society. Now you have blood on your hands, like actually physical blood on your hands. And you have to live with that. So that does create some camaraderie between these characters. So, um Darrow eventually meets Roke, who is also known as the poet, uh, a very soft-spoken gold, um, but he survived it through the passage too. Cassius survived it. And the most unexpected of all, the weakest of the whole bunch, the stupidest of the whole bunch, the most foul mouth of the whole bunch, Severo. Foul mouth for sure. <laughs> foul oh, mouth. Severo is the greatest character in the series. I'm just going to throw that out there. For anybody who wants to get into this or has read the first book and wants to read more, Severo is... Is he your favorite character? <laughs> Hands down. Yeah. It's like, uh, he totally annoyed me at first, but just seeing how his character grew throughout the whole series. And well, even just in the first book, I liked him. Well, I think so his I first line was telling Cassius that he just crawled out of his mother's cooch. So it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> he, foul mouth is the right word. Yeah. Yes. Very abrasive, but <laughs> he is very abrasive. What do you guys think of the yeah. chat? Any thoughts about Darrow or Severus? To Abby, who's actually read it. I don't know about everybody else in the chat. That'd yeah, I see Life to the Max as I hear some of the Hunger Gamishness. It's, I, I, I think I that Pierce Brown was, yeah, I hate the comparison so much because it's not, but I think what I'd heard, I think Pierce Brown had said this, and I might have mentioned this earlier. He basically couldn't get this book marketed without doing some appeasement in the first book to the young adult crowd. And that was kind of the popular thing. When did this come out? 2013? Uh, 2014. And the Hunger Games came out yeah. way before that. Cause I was reading the Hunger Games in high school. And I, right. But it was the time those right. movies were, were pretty popular. Yes, it was. It was the time the right. movies were very popular. And I noticed also the writing style between the first book, uh, Red Rising and subsequent books like Golden Sun and Morningstar, the quality of writing increases so much. Absolutely. between subsequent books so you could after reading later books i could tell he kind of had to bring his writing style down just a hair to do that ya marketing huge right. pain in the ass um but golden sun and morning star are just like elevated literature just absolutely fabulous Abby absolutely yeah. funny love it yeah several's great <laughs> several's great um 
Okay, so back to what we were talking about. There's this sense of friendship, and they're all broken up into tribes. So Cassius, Roke, Severo, uh, Darrow, and a whole bunch of others are all taken into House Mars. Uh, there are other houses. They weren't put into House Mars just because that's the planet they're on, um, but because those are the attributes they're reflecting. So if you guys remember the Roman god Pantheon, Mars is the god of war. Uh, and so he's put they, in the house of brutal killers, essentially. In the house of brutal killers. And yeah. they reflect that very much. Like at the very beginning, they automatically break up into three separate tribes within their own tribe. There's uh, Darrow and Cassie who are trying to find ways to, you know, stealthily take over the other tribes. There's Antonia, who's like the worst B word on planet Earth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yep. there's Titus, who is just doing god awful things to other he's an yeah. actual brute yeah um when we said this book is dark and not meant for children we really mean it especially when it comes to what titus does yeah it, yeah the, the things he does to his own classmates is but i mean you know I, the thing about it is it's not gratuitous i wanted to point this out because there's yes. things like game of thrones which are super gratuitous and, and ridiculous and nonsensical and unnecessary in this book all of the brutality has has a purpose all of the the worst parts of it do serve something beyond just bloodlust and brutality and you know making it interesting um and i think that the reactions of every character echo through the series mm -hmm. there's things that happen even by the fifth book where you're like that harkens all the way back to a choice that was made in the very first book and i think he's right. really good at keeping track of those things and making the characters make sense yeah no you're 100% right let me see if I can find that quote. Is it this one? Nope. Sorry. Okay. Oh, no, that one is about several. <laughs> I'm going to find it. Okay, yeah, this is the one. Uh, basically, where he talks about death. I'll remember every sin, every death, and sacrifice is for freedom. And that when Darrow says that, it's true. He remembers every death and every sacrifice. He reflects on killing Julian time and time again. Anytime he's ever had to hurt someone, he reflects on it time and time again. And it makes him stronger. It makes yeah. him more clever. He tries to find better ways to overcome having to do those types of things. He can't always get away with it. Like eventually he does have to come to the realization he has to make big concessions in war because war is real and you have to do what it takes to make sure your side wins because you perceive yourself as the moral side. Um, I think this is why the first person like uh, present tense works so well for this book mm -hmm. because Darrow is such a deep character yeah. <clears throat> and you're right. Like even, even his enemies, he feels for his enemies. He debates with himself in his head about like how to deal with, with the people who have wronged him, even the people who have killed his friends and his family and, and all of these things. Like he's not, two-dimensional at all and i think getting to be inside of his head and be you know live with his emotions and his guilt is it makes the books deeper but i, I also want to point out too like pierce brown does something really interesting in the fact that he you would think that being in the mind of the main character during his planning phases and things like that would give away spoilers he does such clever ways of getting around that where right. daryl will kind of like hint at something you know that he's thinking about but you're, you're not fully clued in and then you're still surprised by the, his actions and, and the things that unfold sometimes. He's kind of, and you said he, you see him develop too. It's so weird going back and reading the first one because Daryl becomes 
this genius warlord and he <laughs> read the first does. book and you're like what an idiot like i forgot how stupid he was as a teenager <laughs> but it makes sense you watch and, and mm -hmm. grow with him and you know when you go back and look it's like oh wow he really did some dumb stuff in the first book right by the time you get to the one i'm reading which is morning starts the third book seven years have passed since the since Red Rising, and just the amount of character growth he has gone through is truly tremendous. I can't say enough mm. for the series. I feel like a shell just like shouting this book out, but right. it's just yeah, I do too, but... <laughs> so good. It's so good. I could talk about yeah. this book all the time. And you know what else is really good is North Arrow Coffee. So if you're going to read a really good book, maybe you should drink some good coffee to go with it. Um, definitely nothing use... goes to better those goes to better together than books and coffee i think that is so, so true though yeah it is so true um i really like north arrows uh christmas blend have you had that one yes yep that one's really oh, good so good it is so good i got my brother like four different bags of north arrow coffee for christmas that's just like how good it is it's totally worth it and it is they are the pro-life coffee company so they donate 15 percent of all of their proceeds to pro-life charities so code hawkhound to get 10% off of your order definitely do that so you can have a good drink to go with your good book and read red rising absolutely. while you're at it absolutely <laughs> nice transition there <laughs> thanks i've been working on that um so one of the big concessions he has to make in war is dealing with prisoners of war so we talked a little bit about titus uh earlier who's an absolute brute and what do you have to do with brutes once you catch them and try to put an end to their ways. Yeah, they have to deal with justice. It's it's really great how the the lessons are brought. Like the lesson plan, it right. seems really loose, but yet it's there. The lesson plan of like dealing with tribalism, dealing with justice. You know how to. It, it's it's I don't know. It's interesting. I don't want to keep going on about it, but yeah, the the justice part of it was was one of the yeah. more interesting ones. It's interesting that they make the students deal with justice, like the proctors of this whole game could have come in and been like okay titus has done enough he's done terrible things to his peers he's oh i don't want to go into it uh, right i just want to say something you mentioned that it's not gratuitous like game of thrones it's really not mm -hmm. um it's much more an illusion he doesn't outright describe the things that titus does he just kind of alludes to it and it leaves you with that sense of creepy feeling like watching the movie psycho but you don't ever right. like see too much, if that makes sense. I know it's a book right. and it's not a movie, but that's the feeling no. I get. Unlike Game of Thrones, where like everything is described and it's really gross and kind of pornographic. Yeah, it, it, he avoids the pornographic really well. I will say mm -hmm. later in the books, it's very detailed in the the brutality and gore of war. Yeah. But yeah, outside of that, and and I think you would expect that in in something where you're talking about massive armies, you know taking over planets and things like that. So, right. But yeah, I do appreciate that. It's not gratuitous on the, uh, the sex front of, of things. Yeah. Even on some violence, like he could get crazy and he does in some parts, but it's never unnecessary. Yeah, and so right. here, when he's dealing with Titus, it is very much necessary. The uh, proctors aren't going to come in. They're not going to stop Titus's violence. <laughs> so in order to stop him from killing all of the golds, Darrow has to kill him. Right. And the proctors do act literally like the Roman gods are basing themselves after. They, they'll float in the sky and they're kind of there, but they're not really going to Mount Olympus. And they literally have a floating Mount Olympus. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
which the the Mount Olympus is Greek, but they're all Roman. Got you know what? It's a blend, but you know what? Roman mythology is just Greek mythology with new names, anyway. So who cares? Yeah, you're totally right, though. There's no difference, really, other than you add in like the whole brothers and the wolf thing, like the Romulus thing. Romulus, like that's about Remus. that's about all that Rome added to the Greek mythology. Worst anyway. names, right? Right? Worst names. Yep. Yep. And, and that's the thing. Their whole society is obsessed with Rome. So if you want to look at um, the the arc of their society, the downfall of their society, you, you really look back to Rome. And as I said, this is historical fiction set in the future. So you're seeing Rome replayed out. You're seeing uh, the Spartans replayed out in certain aspects of the book. Uh, again, the Reds that you talked about, the, the group that picks up Darrow and turns him into a gold and sets him forth in the society. They're entirely based off of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. So. Right. Uh, there's tons of you know little historical nuggets that you know, you know the more you know and notice it, it does make it interesting. Even the characters have been named after historical figures, right? Like Augustus, just Caesar. Like I mean, come on, very much. <laughs> he's the t- he's the most on the nose. Like I will say this: right. it's the first book. It's one of the it's the first villain. So like right. S- Nero, Augustus is like really on the nose. It's like right. two really bad. Yeah. But like outside of that, like there's people like Cassius or Brutus and they don't exactly play out their roles as they did in history or Lysander, right. a, a Spartan general. Um, so like it, it's, it's not all on the nose, but that one, that one a little bit. That is. one's really on the nose. Yeah. yeah, for I sure. I kind of like it though. It's like nice that yeah. you get the little subtle hints and then it's kind of refreshing when it's just like in your face. <laughs> this guy is a mixture of, of August of Caesar Augustus and Nero. And you're going to hate right. him. You're going to hate him. Yeah. And you hate yep. him the whole book. There, there are parts in like golden suns where you like try it. No, he's the worst, but, but that's the thing. He makes the characters interesting. He's not yes. even, even Nero is not a flat character. You right. understand his motivations as it goes along. So, yeah. yeah. And that's definitely true of all of the characters in Red Rising. You start to understand their motivations. One of the things that I find really difficult in Red Rising is when Cassius finally finds out that Darius is the one who killed his brother. Because right. Cassius was like his right hand. He was there helping him execute every single plan. And that just, someone said earlier, Etu Brute, like, yeah. It felt like yeah. a huge stab in the back. And you can kind of see where Cassius is coming from. The fact that not only mm-hmm. did Darrow hide it from him, but went through family it. Honor. Like, yeah. yeah, family honor. So when Cassius duels him, leaves him stranded in the mud to die. I mean, that was really hard. That was right. a hard one to listen through. That was the, that was the first bromance. And it was, it was uh heartbreaking to see that end. And uh, I will say at least, at least that bromance is replaced with a better bromance <laughs> between Darrow and Severo. Cause that is pretty great. It is pretty great because yeah. after that, Rook and Severo become his most trusted allies. Um, and that's really important. And one ally that is kind of unexpected is Mustang. So Mustang is right. from house. Um, Hera? No, that's Greek. Minerva. Minerva. Minerva's the Roman one yep. uh, of wisdom. Right. right. So, um, and she finds him laying in the mud. They had some interactions earlier, um, but she finds him there and helps him. A gold helps him. It, bewildering. She takes him to this cave, nurses him back to health. They spend months and months there. And he finally comes to, and he hears her singing EO song. Right. 
Yeah, I think it's explained later on, maybe in this book, or definitely later on. It's not a spoiler if you've read the first book, that Mustang is how Daryl looks at what the goals could be. Right. And I think that's so interesting. Is like right away you're starting to understand that this society is it's not about genociding the golds. It, it's very much right. what it seems like it is at first. It's like kill all the golds, replace them with reds. And instead, it's way more complex than that. And I actually appreciate the complexity because another thing this, this series does so well is it, it's, it, it takes a look at all of the different ways of uh, governance and different, you know, it uh, talks about capitalism versus, uh, you know, socialism. And it talks about the aristocracy and democracy and all of these different ideas are really brought up in a fair way and played out. And I think it's, I think that that's really interesting that her character is kind of the brains and Darrow's the heart. And it shows like, it's not just us versus them. There's something greater than that. Yeah. It's so interesting because you later find out who her dad is, which is an important plot point. And you would think she would just be this ruthless monster, but she's not. She cares very much for people, uh, not just golds, but for everybody. And Darrow sees that in her. And when I think about uh, Mustang, or Virginia, I think about what EO could have been if she had decided to live instead of sacrificing herself. She could have been this character who fought for more in society. Um, But Mustang very much represents that, not only to the reader, but very much to Darrow. And you could kind of notice the little love interest start to bloom there, but it's not overt. It's not like all these YA novels where it's like, Oh, she's so beautiful, and you know, all it's kinds so much of, more complex than that. It and is I actually, so much more. I actually appreciate that. I, again, I think these books are beyond the audience that they're kind of written for, as far as if it is a young adult novel. Which you know, if you're like a senior, you know, later in high school, it's probably you know good, like in in that range. Uh, sure. I, again, younger, <laughs> you know, definitely 15, not younger little, audience, but like the juniors and seniors I teach. Sure, I right, right. It, I feel like it's there's a lot of wisdom in these books for for people of that age. But yeah, it's it's a more complex view on on love and relationships and marriage and things like that than you would normally get out of just like this infatuation that you get. <laughs> like right. young adult novels, just infatuation, and therefore we love each other happy happily ever after, and it's so shallow. And like that's what so I hate shallow. about romance and Hollywood and young adult novels in general. They're always just, I was infatuated with this person and then we found a way and that's all that love is. Which when I'm in the mood for it, I'll read a good trashy romance novel. It's like eating popcorn. It's not good for me. I love it. Uh, That's not what this book is. This is good nutritional romance. I don't know. Well, on both sides though, because on both sides, because as a guy, the, the, the junk food for us is, you know, diehard and like, just like, shoot everybody and kill them. And this has that, but it's also so much more complex. Like the ideas of war are not just, Hey, how many people can we kill and be gratuitous about it? But it's a, a more complex view on, on, on a uh, war and, and life and stuff like that. So it's uh, it, it go, it, it appeals to both audiences, but it's not junk food. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about it. And it takes all of the books for that relationship between um, Darrow and Mustang to flesh out into any sort of thing. Here you just kind of see the development of loyalty between them. He sees in her someone who represents gold society, but the good in it. And she sees in him the potential to exact her dream to better gold society because she right. also wants that too. So they can play off each other's dreams. 
what does not represent any of those good things is the embodiment of true evil in this book. And this is where we come to the jackal. So who is the jackal? Do, do we want me to tell you? I mean, people at this point, you've read it or we've spoiled enough for you anyway. Right. The jackal, <laughs> the jackal is the, I, I've said he's the most flat character, but he's, he's not exactly, he's not. It's just that he is an embodiment of pure evil. So mm-hmm. as far as that would go, as far as like, I still don't think he's a flat character. I think every character has depth, but he is just Every character pure. just has so much depth. He seems even flat him, Even him, which is, yeah, for sure. Right. Even him, because he is just pure evil. He's just yes. pure psychotic. And it turns out that it's, it's Virginia's brother, and they are the son and daughter twins of Nero, the man who killed his wife. So the whole relationship right there is super complex. But uh, Jackal, in this book, is... is uh, pretty brutal villain for Darrow, but he also becomes a very more fleshed out and interesting villain through the trilogy, I would say. So uh, he's very much the Moriarty to Darrow's Sherlock Holmes. Um, that's the way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Because he's a genius it's not too. Like he's, he's an actual genius. Uh, right. I can't remember if it's this book or a later book, but he describes him like learning how to play chess when he was like five, like who can do that? But an absolute genius. Um, yeah, and, Virginia, who's known as the smartest character in Darrow's circle, she's like, he's right. smarter than, like, he's way smarter than me, and she knows it. Right. Yeah. Right. And his evil is very patient. He plays the long game, which is very different from evil we might see in other books. Uh, in other books, you know, there's the big red button. I got to press it. And if I don't uh, press it, you know, I don't know, something bad's going to happen. But the jackal doesn't play those games. He has plan, backup plan, plan Z. Like he's got the whole filing cabinet out and ready to go. Um, and that's what he does in the Institute. His story in the Institute is really kind of tragic. You feel for him and that he basically had to be a cannibal at the very beginning of his time at the Institute, which is really. Yeah. Whew. Mind collapsed. They had to eat their. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's. You feel bad for him, I think. And then I think as the series goes on, you, you start to feel not bad for him because he's just, he is pure evil from from birth. Yeah, I he think, is. So. And then after he kills Pax, which Pax Ao Telemannus is amazing and I love him. And he's just the big strong guy. And to me, he's like that big buff guy in, uh, what is it? Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. I don't know if you watch anime. I haven't but, seen that. I do watch uh, some anime with my wife, but I haven't seen that one. It's so good. He's just a very lovable character. It, you can't not like him, but then the jackal right. kills him when he's trying to escape Darrow's clutches, and it's just... That, oh, I think I that it. is the hardest lesson in the book. Yeah. There's a lot of lessons Darrow has to learn. He always learns them by... Uh, somebody dying. <laughs> his teeth kicked in or somebody dying. <laughs> like, all of his lessons are learned uh, through pain and through grief. Yeah. And, and this is really where you see a man who will push through literally anything to make his wife's dream come true. He's just so driven. And and as you said, his faith drives him. His faith in, in the veil, which is their version of, of heaven, uh, mm-hmm. really drives him on. But, you know, seeing his wife in the veil, making sure that he's done everything that she's asked of him so he can die in peace. And that that was the hardest lesson that Darrow had to learn. And it's an important one. And it's important through the series. But it's uh, there's a couple of those lessons where it's just like, wow. Right. Uh, Pax's death. I know we didn't talk much about Pax. He's just, he's just lovable. You can't not like the guy. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, right. I hate that's all that we have to say about Pax. He's one of those characters you you just have to read you the book to, to read really it. get him. Yeah. His time in the book is so short that he doesn't have future books to draw from character-wise. He is, uh, Pierce builds him up very well and tears him down and left me crying. So, you know, that, he's a great character. I loved him. And I like that you mentioned the veil because that's the last thing I want to touch on um, before we get to a few other things is faith. Faith is such an undercurrent in this book. Um, when we get to the obsidians, there's not much of them there, but basically the golds are their gods and they're driven by that faith. For the reds, they believe in the veil or their version of heaven. And that version of heaven is such a driving force for people and the golds don't have that. Their only driving force is for power. And that power makes them so dirty and hungry and thirsty for blood. It's really sad. I feel really bad for them in a way because they don't have that thing to look forward to. So when all of these golds die, they don't have that veil to look forward to. All they have is this life of struggle and power. Whereas Darrow comforts himself in times where he thinks he's going to die. He's like, okay, I did everything I could. You know, people will take it from here. And there's some sort of peace in that, but the goals don't have that. Yeah, it's very interesting because Daryl represents traditional family values. He represents traditional uh, faith uh, values, and and he lives in a world where they are post Christian. They're post, mm -hmm. you know, family. They've just completely abandoned all of that. And Daryl's, right. uh, <laughs> I don't know, if, I don't know if you want to use the word conservative, but he's like the conservative. He is this. though. Right. He he's trying to bring those, those values back. Tradition. Yeah. Whereas the golds, they have gratuitous sex. They have gratuitous violence. Um, the way I like to think of them, I mean, they're truly like the original Greek pantheon. They are so consumed with themselves and their own pleasure and their own power. They're basically an Ouroboros. If you don't, if right. you guys don't know what an Ouroboros is, this is it. The snake eating its own tail, basically on a path to destroy itself. And the golds are very much a picture of mainstream culture. I mean, we can see our own culture now is very much obsessed with sex and gratuitous violence. And it's very much <clears throat> abandoned God and whatever form of faith. You know, I'm a Christian. Let's talk about Christian values here on this podcast. So, a culture that has abandoned God is just consuming itself. It is seeking its own right. self-satisfaction and its own power. And that's what the golds are doing. And so much of what Darrow and even Mustang are doing is they're trying to fight their way back towards some sort of value, towards some sort of faith. Because if right. you don't have faith in God or something after this life, then what is the point of being here anyway? It, it very much feels relevant to the times. And I, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm overselling this a little bit. And I know this first book is not the greatest of them. They each get better. But I, I read mm -hmm. this series as something that actually has staying power because I think it says something so powerful, not just about our time, but about humanity in general. And, you know, it's like this society that they live in is the World Economic Forum's wet dream of like just ordering people. It's the aristocracy on steroids. And it's, you know, some people are going to live in the, live in, You're the gonna <laughs> live in the pod and eat the bugs, which is essentially the Reds. They, they live yeah, in these little right. cave huts. They eat, they eat boiled blood soup from, from pit vipers. Right. From and, pit they vipers nothing, just snakes. and they, <laughs> they have nothing and they're happy. Like so, 
Right. They own nothing and they're happy. So that way the rest of the society can build themselves on their backs. And it it does feel like, uh, you know, it's a conservative family faith values against a society that's abandoned all of that in in favor of uh, ordered, structured uh, control. And that's the thing. They built something that works. It's just that it works if you don't look. And that's why they even call Darrow. They call him the the low reds because there's even high reds. In, in this society, which we didn't mention, but like the low reds are so ignored. They're the ones who are lied to. Actually, the high reds, they're another type of slave, but they're in the society and right. they know that they're slaves. And the low reds, they don't even know. They've been lied to. They literally think they're terraforming Mars uh, that, you know, and, and then mm-hmm. come to find out, oh, hey, not only have they terraformed Mars, they've terraformed every other planet pretty much and they're working on right. Pluto. So, I mean, that moment when Darrow is brought to the surface and he sees the city that is sitting on top of Mars, totally terraformed. Right. Oh my gosh. I wanted to cry for <clears throat> him because his whole world, I mean, his world was broken when EO died, but his literal purpose for being like, he had believed that he was doing something good and purposeful and it all right. meant nothing. Right. Like, yeah, that was a, uh, that was one of those twists that I, I actually didn't fully see coming because nobody really told me anything other than this is a, you know, cast system dystopian novel. And I think the twists in these books are really done well. I I mean, so much so, and I'll admit to like, I usually, it drives my wife nuts. So I'm not going to, I want, I'm going to sound stupid here for a minute, but it it drives my wife nuts because we'll watch any movie or whatever. And in the beginning, I'll tell her, oh, this is how it's going to end. Cause you, you know, you read enough Mm -hmm. books and you like understand narrative structure. I was even like convinced for half a second that he might have actually killed Darrow off in the beginning and then it was going to switch to a narrative of another <laughs> right. character because it was so like thorough the way that he does stuff. It's it not, was so final. Right. It was so final and it's not like he doesn't super project what's coming next. Like, hey, right. did you catch that? Did you catch that? Making sure <laughs> that I'm talking down to my audience constantly where it's like really annoying. He just goes with it and it makes sense, but it's not like, I don't feel like he talks down to the audience. I think that's what I and, appreciate yeah. about it. That's why I love his writing is because right. we were talking about the YA classification and part of the my struggle with YA, because I love YA. I mean, if you see my shelf, there's plenty of YA books there. They sure. very much do have to talk down to their audience because they're writing for a younger reader audience. It makes sense. But at the same time, you're kind of belittling your audience when you do that. If you just write just a little bit more, you push your readers to want more and to pursue more and expect more from their writer. So he doesn't take the lazy way out for sure. He builds up real characters. He builds up a real world and a world that's very much a commentary, I think, on the world that we're living in. So I have one question for you and for our audience, I think would be a good kind of wrap-up question. Sure. So Darrow comes drawn into this world where ruthlessness and power are valued above all else. And is at times forced to use all of the methods we talked about to survive. How does this reflect the pressure that Christians and those with other beliefs outside the social norms often face in our world? How, how do we have to deal with using those tactics or should we go to those tactics if we're Christians? I feel like this book handles that really well where there is a line. And I think we've seen this in played out in, in politics uh, a lot in the modern day where it's like, Yes, you have to be more ruthless. Some part of you has to be the guy 
some part of you has to be the guy that pushes back and is kind of a kind of a dick just to say it the, right. the way it is, right? Uh, and then is. there's then there's the uh, and I think this book has characters like this where it's like people are so sick of getting kicked while they're down that they'll turn to someone and I, I don't mean to keep harping on this because I know we've talked about this through and through, but they'll turn to people like Andrew Tate where it's just like, hey, we're so sick of of masculinity being called toxic. We're so sick of being told that we suck and we should, you know, apologize for being white or whatever it is that they'll turn to actual racists. They'll turn to actual misogynists, right. people who are actually just really bad in order to fight back. So there's, there's that line I think you have to have. And I think Darrow's inner monologue is constantly dealing with this. It's like how much is too much? How, how much is too brutal? How do I get the right. point across and win the war without sacrificing my soul? And I think that that's, I don't think that there's just a simple answer to some of these yeah. questions. And I think that's what these books do so well is Darrow has to to balance between, you know, at times like, who am I going to sacrifice even? Like, that's a huge yeah. thing that comes in these books. It's like so big. every battle is won by paying with people's lives. Who who am I going to allow to die? And what am I going to give up on in order to win the next battle? And uh, without giving any huge spoilers away, there's a huge one in the third book that is so interesting that we you and me have to talk about this afterwards yes. because i i yeah but i i think i'll just that, say i cried a lot of tears yeah yeah <laughs> um and it, and that one even goes back to history too and i love the way that right. pierce brown handled it but we'll talk about that after but i think right. you know not trying to like weasel my way out of the answer but i think it's just one of those things that it's it's a morality thing and it's yeah. not you know every situation calls on that uh, morality and having that basis in morality and that's where Darrow's faith comes in you know he's got that grounding in morality that the, the golds don't have they have a ruthless society that's kill or be killed win at all costs and Darrow brings that morality back into that society and asks the questions you know how much do i have to push to win to to give people freedom and how much would i and, and how would i go too far and become the the villain right and i think that's what's so fascinating no, I think you're absolutely right. And there is such this balance because on the one hand, you could turn to people like Andrew Tate, or on the other hand, you could turn to like the people who won't even dare to question the authority. And I'm thinking, right. and it's sad that it poisons so many people in the faith. Like you think of those mega church pastors, people like Joel Osteen, who right. preach this health, wealth, and whatever, prosperity gospel, that is absolute poison. And it keeps people locked up in themselves, right? They're focused on kind of like how the reds are, right? They think they're doing what is right, because that's what they've been told is right. And they've convinced themselves that it's true. So why would I fight back? If I, if I just keep doing what I'm doing, good things will happen. It but also you, begs I, the question. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you're go ahead. I was say, it also begs the question between being nice and being kind. I mean, we see the societal pressure all the time to, well, you don't want to, you don't want to be a, you don't want to be a jerk. You want to be nice to people. You don't want to be a bad guy. And it's like, yeah, being nice could also mean uh, accepting other people's oppression on you so you don't hurt their feelings. And sometimes you have to have someone who knows when to be a dick, when to be, sorry, to be suffered, but like yeah, when no, to be, good. when to be a jerk, you know, and when to, to push back and be like, actually being nice and being kind are two different things. And I think that's an, another question that's not like overtly stated in this book, but I think it raises those uh, those thought patterns, those questions in people's minds and gets them to ask those questions of themselves and where they're at in society. It does. And not to toot my own horn, but if you go to my YouTube channel and look at the speech that I gave in Denver, that was right. the whole that was plot a great of my speech. speech. Yes. Thank you. Yes, it was um, great. 
yeah, so talking about toxic niceness is, I mean, it's a real thing. It's poisoned our church. It's poisoned our culture. And these books raise so many good questions. Uh, do we have any questions or comments from the audience before we tune out? Anybody in the chat have any thoughts about the book? I'm books? sorry I wasn't wholesome, uh, Britta. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be more clean on this channel, PJ. Not that this book is clean. So, I mean, I guess. Right. Okay. No. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> but definitely tune in at this same time next week. I will be having Abby Libby on to talk about. The Postmodern Pilgrim's Progress by Kyle Mann and Joel Berry of the Babylon Bee. That book is so stinking good. I am so excited to talk I to her about it. I love that book. That was probably one of my favorite new books of 2022. Yes, yeah, Also, um, I wanted to answer this question from Britta. She says, where can I get the book? Get the audio book. Get we, the we audio book. I know, I know you showed up late. Tim Gerard Reynolds just makes, the, makes it so much better. You just really need to listen to this one. And it's a long list and it's like 18 hours or something like that. It's worth it. You won't get bored. You'll be sucked in and it'll go by. I, I really Like I said, I think by. I read the first book now like four or five times and I never do that. I usually listen to a book once. I'm like, cool, I get the ideas and I, I don't go back, but I have with these. Uh, Abby said something actually untrue about the postmodern pilgrim's progress. Yes, it is made by funny people and it is funny, but it 100% made me cry. Uh, I'm also a crier, so maybe that's, but the ending of the book. Okay. That we'll save that for next week. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you, PJ, for being on for the first episode. Thank you. Can I show you really quick? Um, I yes. know that we were going to stream this to Rumble. Do you have your Rumble link so I can drop that in the chat? Let people know to follow uh, you there. So next week yes. you can uh, let me stream this. Rumble. And while 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 Jess is grabbing that, I'm just going to take over for a moment and say Go I am it. so excited that you're doing this podcast. I'm so excited that we were finally able to announce this because you and me had worked on on this idea together and uh, bringing you into to what I'm building uh, with Hawk and what we're building all together. You, me, and Katie and Abby. I'm so excited. I've been wanting. My my whole goal with Hawkeye, if you guys are not familiar and if you're not following that channel, please do. But my whole goal was to see all the podcasts that I wanted to be made from a perspective that I wanted to see put out there. And uh, we've been doing that with Conspiracy Pilled. We've been doing that with Overruled and Crime Land with Katie Zed. So thank you so much for Katie Zed. And now that we're able to do books, which I'm a super book nerd, <laughs> and that's why I'm so excited about this. Uh, I just appreciate you so much. And I'm so excited that you're doing this. And I'm so grateful that you brought me on for the first episode to talk about my favorite book series. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing me into Hawkhound. I am so excited for Hawkhound's venture. I love all of the podcasts. I love Overruled with Katie Zed. I love Conspiracy Pilled. Conspiracy Pilled is definitely one of my top 10 favorite <laughs> podcasts right now. Never miss thank it. You. Guys, if you don't listen to either one of these, make sure you go tune in. The links are dropped in the description below. Uh, make sure you check them out and make sure you tune in again next week for more books and more fun. See you then. Hey guys, don't forget to tune in to Hawkhound Media on YouTube on January 13th at 7 p.m. We are launching a brand new show called The Dog Pile. It is going to be so much fun. Everybody from Hawkhound will be there. PJ and Abby from Conspiracy Pilled, Katie Zed from Overruled, and me, Jess, from Lit. So please tune in. It's going to be a lot of fun. See you there. <laughs>